afternoon and good evening, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, sponsored by Flying Penguin Graphics, produced by Kieran Nemont, and here's your host, Curtis Brown. Hello, folks, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, where emerging creatives and producers can gain insight from established and respected producers about what it takes to be successful in the TV, film, or theater industry, or any industry that has a producer. I'm your host, Curtis Brown, and I'd like to say that I'm joined by Kieran Nemont, but he is unfortunately not here because he's broken every bone in his body when he tried to save someone from falling on the tube tracks, and he is currently in the hospital turning what? into dust. What are you saying? I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, you ruined it. That's a horrible and unrealistic <laughs> thing to say because Kieran is actually afraid of public transit, so he doesn't ever. He walks everywhere. He That's is an incredible shame. Well... Kieran, well, <laughs> I, I now now I don't know what to say because I was going to intro to you anyway. <laughs> Get on um, <laughs> But he is a producer. He is our producer, editor, mixer. Kieran Nemont, how are you? Hey, all good. And you, sir? Yeah, okay. What's going on in uh, London? Not much. All good. All good. Oh, well. There you go. Another <laughs> riveting answer from Kieran. You know, asking Kieran to speak is like watching a dog walk on its hind legs, even if it isn't done well. You're just amazed that it's happening at all. Um, oh, lovely. Yeah. But anyway, despite that fact, um, I'm actually surrounded by books because I'm now in my parents' office. I'm back home in Vancouver. But I am really excited for our next guest because she is an avid reader. You'll hear at the end of her intro. But she's so insightful. She's so knowledgeable. She's a theater historian, a writer. She's brilliant. She's um, a talk about taking the initiative is what I would say about this guest. And I think she drops a lot of a lot of good a lot of good wisdom on on producers and what it takes when opportunities aren't coming your way and what that means to make your own opportunity. So, Kieran, take us away. Our guest today is so accomplished, my Google Chrome shut down and asked me to click the lines in a Mississippi crosswalk because they thought I was a robot due to the amount of tabs I had open while researching her. I may need an inhaler by the end of this introduction, but here we go. Our guest today is a Broadway producer, theater historian, and writer residing in New York City, where she is also a graduate of New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. She's the creative program director at Feinstein's 54 Below, where she created, produced, and wrote, if it only even runs a minute, created the Jonathan Larson Project, and Hit List, which is the live concert version of the fictional musical from NBC Smash. Her work at the venue has garnered praise from the Huffington Post, the New York Times, and Playbill. Not a big deal. She has worked on Broadway projects in numerous capacities, including directing, producing, and marketing for the title of show, The Performers, the 2011 revival of Godspell, and the 2013 revival of Macbeth. She has also worked off-Broadway and at other regional theaters, including Arsenova, Weston Playhouse, and Goodspeed. As if this wasn't enough, she has also been involved with NAMPT, the New Alliance of Music Theater, PBS, TEDx Broadway, Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, and so many more incredible projects, we would have no time left in the interview if I continued to name them all. For almost a decade, she has worked with Joe Iconison family, where she produced Broadway Bounty Hunter, Love and Hate Nation, and was the lead producer on the Broadway show Be More Chill. Have you heard of it? And to round out only a quarter of her resume, she is the author of the Untold Stories of Broadway series, the recipient of a 2020 Lincoln Center Emerging Artist Award, the historian consultant on the upcoming film version of Tick, Tick, Boom, and has read almost 100 books throughout quarantine. <laughs> Welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, Jennifer Ashley Tepper. Thank you for having me. I'm so sorry you had to do all that, all those tasks. Are you kidding? I'm privileged to have you on the show with a resume like that. I'm so, so happy we get to finally meet. 
Yes, me too. And thank you for mentioning that I've read almost 100 books during quarantine. That's definitely been an accomplishment. <laughs> I know. That's unbelievable. What have you been reading for like 100 books? Like you must be interested in every subject. Well, so many different things. I just finished reading an advanced copy of Michael Riedel's upcoming book, which I definitely recommend. It's about Broadway in the 90s and it's great. And I just finished reading Shrill by Lindy West, which is a great TV show too. So like a lot of different kinds of books. Well, I know I read your tweet yesterday and I was like, I need a good hook at the end of this. And I think <laughs> this is it. And, and then you said you, if you could read, you read, you want to read a hundred. And so you're at 90 at the moment. Yeah, actually 91 now. Read a book yesterday. How did I do that? I don't know. <laughs> Wait, you finished the entire thing in one day? Um, no, I, I've been like reading a bunch of things at a time. So I just finished the book yesterday. That's unbelievable. Well, listen, I'm so privileged, so happy to have you on the show. Um, and I... I, I actually wanted you on the show because I know I, we were just speaking about this before that I ask questions to guests on all the show because it's such a common trend that everyone starts off in one aspect of the arts and then transitions into producing. So you went to NYU with a major in writing. So how did you get into producing? Totally. Um, you know, I always think about it, how you can't, you can act in the school play, like in middle school and high school at summer camp, you can't really produce the school play. You can't really like costume design the school play or publicize it. Maybe you can, like if you've got a great, you know, high school program going on, but for the most part, you know, there are so many jobs in theater that you really can't do when you're first learning about theater. Everyone kind of comes to it mostly from performing, which is great. Um, and similarly, even in college, you know, when I was applying to school, I thought I really want to be involved in making new musicals happen. I really want to be involved in theater history. Um, I know I want to be in New York, like New York city or bus, no matter what. And there wasn't really a program for like budding theater historian, like, <laughs> right. So, um, I went to Tisch for dramatic writing cause I love theater and I love writing. And I was like, I'll be in New York and I'll kind of carve my own path. And immediately I started doing that. You know, I, it's kind of a cliche, but I really felt like New York City was my campus as much as NYU was. And I learned so much just from seeing shows and like pursuing internships and volunteer opportunities and doing stuff myself on campus and meeting people. Um, you know, I would often, anything that NYU had free tickets to, I would go to multiple times and take notes on the changes that were being made in previews. Like that was kind of a, I, you know, all I assigned myself books, all kinds of stuff. Um, and so, you know, it was interesting because I was in a department of dramatic writing where everyone wants to write, you know, the Big Lebowski or the Godfather. It was like a department mostly of screenwriters and TV writers. And for me, I was like, you know, has any, anyone want to talk about follies? So I was a little <laughs> bit of an odd, odd bird in that department, which just made me even more motivated to kind of forge my own path. Wow. That's so, that's amazing that you would literally go to see the show multiple times and take notes. Did you ever tell anyone? Did you ever like approach the director or anyone and be like, Hey, wait, why did you change this? Oh my gosh. No, it was really the opposite. It was all like for learning. I thought about this recently because um, I watched the TV remake of High Fidelity and High Fidelity was a musical on Broadway when I was in college that I did that with, you know, I would be like today they tried this. And um, it was just like a, I guess that's like a microcosm though of like my whole experience in New York as a college student was like, what is everyone doing? Like, let's visit every Broadway theater. Like what goes on here and there? And so, um, yeah, I really started kind of just like teaching myself what I wanted to know. Wow. Way to take the initiative. And that's something that you always hear about when you're in college. Teachers always say, well, you're not going to have this opportunity next year. So take advantage of it while you can. And that's something you obviously did. Totally. You know, for me, who I grew up in South Florida and like dreamed of New York and like got eight cast albums for Hanukkah every year and like saved my allowance to like, you know, subscribe to Playbill magazine, even though I wasn't going to actually see any of the shows in real life. <laughs> and so for me, it was like the culmination of years spent dreaming of New York. It was like every moment was, you know, I remember like freshman year, I couldn't imagine not seeing a show every night because I was in New York. And then you're like, wait, I can't do that. Like I live here, you know, I have to do some homework or, you know, go to sleep. So it was such a like 
culture shock in a way that I had been preparing for my whole life that I like fully needed to take advantage of. That's so great. And then you interned as well three times, if I'm not mistaken. Jeff Bowen, Hunter Bell, as a senior at NYU, R&H. And then did you intern on title of show as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So how that kind of happened, one of the things I started doing to be like, I'm going to forge my own path was I started producing this kind of showcase concert at NYU um, that I, again, being in a department full of screenwriters, I was like, I want to work with the musical theater students. Like, I want to make musical theater material. And so we put together this show for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights, AIDS that I directed um, and produced with like an amazing group of people. And like so many of those people have gone on to such incredible things. Jay Armstrong Johnson, um, Broadway star Jay Armstrong Johnson was the choreographer and star of it. Like that's how we first met. Anna Conkle, who I'm obsessed with on Pen15 was in one of the shows. And so I started doing that. And um, one of the things we did was we really wanted to do a song from title of show because as students at NYU at the time, it was off Broadway. We were all like obsessed with it. We were like, we have to do a song from this musical. So I wrote to Jeff Bowen and Hunter Bell through like their website. And um, they wrote me back a really nice email being like our show sheet music is not published yet but like this is so nice and thank you for thinking of us and so I invited them to come see our performance even though like we weren't even doing their song and they came and they were I know like they were so kind um and Susan Blackwell came with them and like we just kept in touch from there like it was so unbelievably nice of them to come see a bunch of NYU kids doing a show um we kept in touch and at some point they were looking for an intern because they were going to make this web series basically saying that title of show was going to Broadway even though like it wasn't officially they were like we're just going to secret this before secreting was a thing right Um, I was their intern during that whole process um, of the title of show show, which was like one of the first theater related web series. And at the end of my senior year of college, it really happened where Kevin McCollum and a bunch of other wonderful producers moved title of show to Broadway. And Michael Barras, the director who had had me around and gotten to know me through my intern with Hunter um, and Jeff, Michael Barras hired me as his assistant. So like I was extremely lucky timing wise the summer after I graduated NYU, I was like at the Lyceum theater on Broadway. Um, <laughs> from all of my heroes, like working on a Broadway show. And it led to everything, you know, exploring the Lyceum. I always say this, but it's so true. Exploring the Lyceum with Jeff Bowen, who's a fellow nerd, as anyone who knows title of show knows, um, is what led to me being inspired to write my books and like kind of discovering that the Lyceum that we were doing a show in every night was also like home to all this other history that had happened and kind of placing that in physical areas of the theater was really influential. What an opportunity, eh? And what timing of that, eh? Just right away out of school. I mean, that's what you wish for, right? Like you educate yourself for all these years and then you come out and you're like, wait, I'm actually doing the thing I trained for. And Michael Barres told you, you might not be someone who fits the mold because you are the mold. So how do you take that advice and how did you apply that to like your career? You know, um, I love that advice. I think about it all the time. And it's kind of something that's in title of show, even though, you know, Michael would say it, which is also, it's like a Ouroboros snake eating its own tail. It's why it's in title of show, um, where the character slash person Heidi is like, also like, you know, doesn't fit the mold. So she makes her own mold. But, um, you know, after title of show, what was, um, really like an informative experience for me was that I spent, and I tell this to every intern I ever have, um, I spent basically two years after title of show applying for like so many full-time theater jobs that I never got. And all I wanted to do was like work in a producer's office or work on the musicals. And I truly, I probably applied to 200 jobs that I didn't get. And I'm so lucky in that I had so many cool, like, um, kind of gigs in theater. Like I would get hired to be a PA on a workshop for two weeks. And then I would do a bunch of nannying. And then I would like get hired to be a producer's assistant on like a one night project. And then I would do a bunch of babysitting. And it was a lot of like, 
doing the day job thing as an artist in New York city. And also like, just like hustling, but I never could crack that like playbill job listing thing, which like, it's, it's so competitive and it's so random and it's so like, you have to fit a mold. Um, and the way that I finally got a full-time theater job was in those two years where, when I really started like developing my own voice and producing my own concerts and working with Joe Iconis for the first time. And, um, I was working on one of Joe's musicals, blood song of love at Ars Nova, mm-hmm. um, doing like a bunch of creative marketing stuff when, uh, Ken Davenport, Broadway producer, Ken Davenport, um, wrote to me and was like, I actually, I invited him to the show and was like, he saw a bunch of stuff I was doing. And he said, I want to hire you to do exactly what you're doing on this show, on my shows in my office and hired me for my first time full for first full-time theater job because of like just things I was making with my friends. Cause I cared about it. Um, and I had applied for jobs right. and hands off support and not gotten them. So it was like, that's the ultimate, you know, everything I did during those two years of like, Oh my God, am I ever going to get a real full-time job in theater led to jobs later? Like that's when I've created runs a minute, which like led to so many other opportunities and like me celebrating underappreciated musicals became my foundation of being a theater historian. So, um, yeah, it's just like, again, carving your own path. That is so, I also love the idea of runs a minute. I think that is so cool. Like finding a gap and going, wait, why isn't anyone doing this? Why isn't anyone showcasing these things? And that's what I'm starting to notice when talking to all these other producers is that it's like, they're looking at a scope and they're going, where's the hole and how do I fill it? Because that's really like how you create a market for yourself, isn't it? And actually in a interview, I think you did in producer's perspective, you said producing involves so many of the same skills, no matter what level you're doing at. So what is one of your core competencies and what traits do you think a producer should have? I think that like at the core of it, the producer is everyone's boss, right? So the producer is essentially responsible for assembling most of the pieces of the project, whether it's like a reading you're doing with your friends in a basement where you like all drink soda or whether it's a Broadway show or whether it's like any, any level of um, performance. And so a producer has to be a leader um, that like makes tough decisions and that decides like who should be in what rooms and like what they're going to do and how the resources are going to come together to pay for it or to make it possible. Um, And so, you know, producing at like a teeny tiny grassroots scrappy level, like I did for many years, informed so many of the ways that like when, you know, Be More Chill finally got to Broadway and I was like kind of like one of the bosses of so many of my friends and collaborators of many years, we had this great foundation. um, But a lot of the lessons and like things that we had learned about making decisions together over the course of a decade came into play um, and kind of made it a really unique experience because you don't often have that kind of foundation with artists. You don't have that shorthand. You don't have the, um, you know, the special sauce of like, oh, this thing that we're doing is special because we've worked on it together for a decade. So yeah, I think that like a lot of that is very, there are a lot of similarities to just like making a show for a hundred people in a basement. Right. And what do you think one of your, like when people think Jennifer Ashley Tepper, what do they, what do you think they think that you're good at? Or what do you think that you're great at? Yeah. You know, I think that because I have the like historic perspective and knowledge like that adds something to it like I've always been so interested again in like making new musicals happen and in going like you know when we like do this thing that no one's ever done before in the year 2019 it actually is similar to a thing that happened in 1950 so like just being able to have that kind of um knowledge base and perspective to bring to the table uh there's so much in theater where people have short memories or they just don't know and they think that everything that's happening is new and you know there would be a marketing idea and I'd be like you know even though we're doing this on Instagram it actually 
is similar to like a viral thing that happened, you know, at the Schubert in the seventies. So just being able to like draw on history as a producer, I think is like a real tenet of like what I do and try to do. Wow. Well, my next question was being a theater historian, how do you <laughs> think it's informed decisions in your producing career? But I think you've just <laughs> answered that. That's amazing. And so becoming like a theater historian, are you just reading everything you can about theater history and taking notes and just like absolving it as much as you can? Definitely. Um, you know, it's funny though, like there really are so many ways that doing both things at the same time, like, and honestly, I consider my job at 54 Below as creative and programming director, both, you know, it's kind of like being a theater historian at the same time as I'm being a producer, um, because so much of our content and like shows that we put on has to do with theater history. You know, we've done dozens and dozens of musicals and concert that are like full musicals and concert of underappreciated musicals that might not have happened if I didn't have that, you know, information in my brain. So um, there's so much of that. And there's so much of like working on untold stories of Broadway volume four, as I am right now, and mm. you know, editing stories from people who work on all different work in all different Broadway professions and going like, oh yeah, like, you know, when I talk to our sound designer on Broadway Bounty Hunter, I understood this element of what he was working on because I interviewed that sound designer for a book four years ago. Um, and just the way that the pieces kind of come together, um, I feel like I've become so much more informed by writing my books as a historian about all the different jobs in the theater. You know, not that I didn't know what a house manager did before, but really getting into like the story of a house manager, you understand when you're a producer working with a house manager, what they're doing. You know, it's like it adds right. a of um like just like understanding it's part of the reason why like you know I'm so bad at like design but I really wish that I had taken design courses in college to like learn from them and I tell that to students all the time I'm like even if you're an actor and you're positive you always want to be an actor like take a directing class like go costume design a show because whatever the version of that is that informs you like not saying you ever going to do that professionally but it'll make you a better actor you know it's that yeah, I think Lin-Manuel said something very similar to that. He was like, I'm going to go and take a lighting design course and then I'm going to take a sound design so that I get the full like the full circle of what is actually going on in this theater and to fully understand all the elements and really how you can use those elements to enhance the story, which is really the whole reason why we're there. And actually, it's funny because I'm glad you brought up the Untold Stories of Broadway because in the third volume of your book, uh, you talk about how Hal Prince worked as an assistant stage manager on Touch and Go and would have to run around the theater to give their actors their 15-minute call. And then by the time he finished, he would have to run, run around and give the 10-minute call. Um, so obviously, technology has made this now a touch of a button and has prevented fitness rings on Apple Watches to close all around the world. But... Um, <laughs> As a Broadway historian, I want to know what you think the future of Broadway looks like in terms of technology. Like, do you believe theater can be transformed into virtual reality? Do you think adding too much technology can ruin that? Because I know they're playing with it in the UK. I see a lot of different producers and people talking about it. So I wanted to get your opinion on that, especially because you kind of know the whole scope of the thing. Yeah, you know, I'll say I had like an incredible few experiences with projection designers in 2019 on all the shows that I worked on. And it really impacted how I think about projection design and how it can completely enhance. It can totally add and make something more theatrical. Um, you know, on Broadway Bounty Hunter specifically, our projection designer, Brad Peterson, um, was able to create like digital marquees for a scene where like the characters are in Times Square. And it's something that like on an off-Broadway show or on any show that's not like a huge big budget Broadway musical, um, you're not going to be able to like do that, but you can do 
do it with projections and it doesn't take away from the scenic design. It's something that like integrates with it. So I think a lot of the ways that um, technology has enabled like projections to happen are really cool. I think the way that um, technology right now is allowing a lot of theater people to make new things is awesome. Mm -hmm. I really, I keep saying this, but it's like what's going on right now with like Zoom theater and with streamed concerts and like performances, it's like not theater. It's so cool that it's like a different kind of art form, but it's not theater. Um, But one thing I am really hopeful about because of how it's happening is that when we do return to live performance, there will be um, like structure in place for hybrids. You know, I want there to be a world where like we can do a theater concert that only 200 people can see live, but it can be accessible because it's a hybrid and they're also streaming it or they're also going to do like a pay-per-view kind of thing. Um, And that artists benefit from that financially and also by like finding new fans who wouldn't be able to see them all over the world. Like there's something so exciting to me about like that becoming possible because of this time we're all living through that's really challenging. Like, oh, that's a good thing that can come from it. Um, I don't know that I, like personally for me, I'm like, oh, the virtual reality stuff is cool. I don't know that I'm into it, but if I was myself at age 16 in Florida, of course I'd be into it. So like maybe it's for, you know, folks who can't see theater live. I understand why it could be a cool alternative. Yeah, definitely. And I know a lot of like, I know my parents, as you can tell, I'm in my parents because I don't have Mickey Mouse plates um, on my wall. <laughs> okay. um, I know. I literally was sitting here like, oh, my God, Jennifer is going to think I'm such a weirdo because I have like, these it. dinner plates on my <laughs> on my wall. Um, but I think it's just so interesting because I know my parents, whenever they've tried like a VR thing, like on a PlayStation or whatever, they get like nauseous immediately. And I would wonder how that would translate. I think, as you said, it would have to be, I guess, for more of a younger generation would be using something more like this. And I wanted to talk about a bit about social media because Be More Chill had such a unique way to Broadway. It had such a unique journey and social media played a huge role in that because you had Two Rivers paying Ghostlight Records to produce the cast album after its run in 2015. And then the show kind of really caught fire in 2017. So how important does social media now play in the success of a show's journey? Yeah, you know, we obviously had like an incredibly unique journey, as you just articulated very well, um, where, you know, a show has never gotten to Broadway because of social media in quite that way. Mm-hmm. Um, social media is so important. And I remember sitting in ad meetings for title of show in 2008, where I was the youngest person in the room and people were literally going, should we make a Facebook page? Will that sell any tickets? And like, that was only a decade ago. And like now it's one of the major ways that Broadway like sells tickets and like shows, you know, what they're doing to fans and all of the ways that social media has like hugely impacted Broadway. Um, Yeah, you know, I think that it will change and it has changed. It's not going to suddenly be like, oh, Be More Chill did this and now there's going to be dozens of shows that get to Broadway because of social media. Um, But certainly like because of the way that you're able to connect with fans, it will have, there will be shows in the future that will have that happen, I think. Um, Also, like, I think what's really interesting to me is certainly, you know, Be More Chill would not have happened with all of the, like, videos and fan art and, like, music and just the fact that, like, that did not hurt the show's journey. It only helped it. I hope has helped open people's minds to, um, you know, I... I don't believe everything should like immediately have a pro shot and we should all be able to watch every Broadway show. You know, I think that takes away from some of it, honestly. Um, I, as far as accessibility goes, you know, even though I grew up in Florida and like was not able to come to New York and see a million shows, um, I was very lucky in that South Florida actually has like a very cool theater scene because there are so many elderly people there where I got to like, you know, go see community theater productions of shows constantly. And I think that part of the accessibility conversation has to be like, it's really cool to see live theater in your hometown. Like go see a high school production of Bye Bye Birdie, like go see a community theater production of Crazy For You. Like it's not just about like 
access only means we need videos of Broadway shows because like, again, that's not theater and that is part of the conversation, but it should also be like, how do we nurture theater communities on tours, like regional theaters in every city so that we can like bring live theater to people that aren't having access to New York. That's so great. And uh, now, obviously, as you said, we can watch like clips on YouTube and listen to cast albums. I mean, that's how you were listening to cast albums when you were in Florida, right? So, I mean, these are all wonderful things, but I'm actually curious to know what your thoughts are on bootlegs, uh, because uh, some people are against it. Some people are for it. Obviously, now, what do we have? bootlegs. Uh, but to put in context for our non-theater listeners, uh, this subject is about as controversial as the blue-black uh, dress versus the golden-white dress debate, but raise the stakes to life or death. So what are your <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? So what, what are your thoughts on a bootleg? Like, I would be actually curious to know how you would feel if you saw like a Be More Chill bootleg going around. I, this is such a tricky topic. I'm glad you asked because I think it's like a good conversation that we can, you know, have. But um, what's funny is that like I bootlegs were so influential to me growing up because the thing is that like not every show gets a cast album and not every show is accessible to everybody and the fact that like I was ever interested in underappreciated musicals came from the fact that even though it was so much harder when I grew up than it is now um you know I would truly find these like websites on the internet with videos for you know to order of shows that didn't get cast albums and I would like get them and then I would like learn about them and that's something that helped me build runs a minute which like has given life to those shows again um and similarly like that's a positive you know I think that even though the ideal thing is like let's make a cast album let's have a video all of those artists should get paid immediately the financial structure is not in place for like every show that like you know most of which don't make money to have a recording in these ways it should be it absolutely should be so I think in that way I've had like a unique experience with bootlegs where I'm like they have contributed to like having those shows get future life and also having those artists and writers get future life. Um, that's a very individual experience to me, but in a very similar way, we had an experience with Be More Chill, right? Where like, honestly, the bootleg was as much of a part as, uh, as like the music platforms and as everything else um, of like getting the show to Broadway. You know, there was like a Two River bootleg that nurtured the fan community and that like I saw everywhere. Um, and I can really only speak for myself, but I think even for other people involved with Be More Chill, who are anti-bootleg in like, you know, in theory, you know, artists should be paid. No one wants a camera that's distracting them from the performance. Like it's not okay to like do a lot of the elements that lead to a bootleg. We also like wouldn't have gotten to New York without it. So it's kind of like a- It's a, like a weird, yeah. It's like <laughs> one keeps crossing over the other. And so it's hard to see what goes on top. So do you think, so would you agree that we should be, cause I know Lonnie Price feels this way that you should, that we should be archiving, like shooting professional archival footage? Totally. I mean, in an ideal world, of course, like, of course, there's archival, like, recordings of everything. Well, of and course. I, yeah, I think yeah. that honestly, this time has done something positive for that. Like, everyone sitting in their apartments in quarantine, watching all of these, like, Broadway pro shot videos has done great things for that. Um, and I think that, like, we've seen that that will only get better. Lonnie Price is responsible for, like, some of the best versions of that. So, like, it makes me happy that he's out there championing it. I know. And in Canada, I looked at the landscape and went, no one's really doing musical films. So I approached a friend, Jake Foy, and he's a great director and great visionary. And I said, we should be doing this. And obviously, I love La Lonnie Price and what he does. I love all his work. And obviously, you're working on Tick, Tick, Boom, which is so awesome. You know, something really fast is like, Speaking of Tick, Tick, Boom, speaking of Lonnie, um, there's a really cool story in Michael Riedel's book where Lonnie Price went to one of the like last workshop performances of Rent because um, he was really good friends with the uh, musical director, Tim Weil. And he said to Tim, like, 
even though the show was like still in process, then he was like, don't ever leave this. You're doing the next A Chorus line. And Jonathan Larson like heard him say that to Tim and as a joke was like, yeah, okay, show me the check. And I was like, oh my God, like I never knew Jonathan Larson and Monty Price were in the same. Like it just made me happy to hear it's, that. That's so crazy. I, also, <laughs> how do you remember all these stories, these unique stories, hey? Yeah, Did you write them all down? Do you write Do you write down like tidbits that you're like, wait, this needs to go in like volume four. This needs to go in volume five. Sort of, but it's amazing how much information that's not theater related leaves my brain. Like I'll be like, you know, hanging out with a friend and I'm like, I don't know which car is yours, even though I've written in it a hundred times because like, <laughs> that information with the lyrics of they're playing our song. Like that's kind of my journey. Um, but uh, you know, in general, like things will come back to me, but also I'll read my books now and be like, Oh, I completely remember all of this, but I like forgot, you know, like there's so much. Right. <laughs> there's just so much, right? Yeah. So you're an above title producer on Be More Chill. So what exactly does that mean? What exactly does that role entail? You know, Be More Chill, obviously, again, like just such a unique journey. I mm. was involved in like producing and doing so many things with Joy Connors and our family of artists for a decade. Um, and then suddenly, you know, we had this opportunity to finally do a musical in this huge way in New York, which we had been pursuing for so long. Um, and what was amazing was like, we had been knocking on doors about Be More Chill for a long time, but because of what happened with it not getting a good review at Two River, um, we didn't quite have an avenue to come to New York. And as soon as it really started like being clear that the show was going viral in this unique way, um, Joe Iconis and his agent and his co-writer Joe Trace started like knocking harder on doors and suddenly there were a few opportunities to bring it to New York and one was Jerry Gehring, amazing producer um, and educator and all these other things who they chose as the person um, and then it was like, you should meet with Jerry and let's see if we can like do this together. And so uh, Jerry and I had this meeting at Sardi's um, in 2018 and it was kind of clear that the plan was like, let's go to off-Broadway. Um, let's not say like, you know, we're going to Broadway. Let's not set it up as like something with that expectation. Right. Maybe we'll be able to extend off-Broadway depending on what happens with the theater. Maybe we'll go on tour. Um, maybe it'll be just like a really great summer and then it'll help all the licensing. But no matter what, Be More Chill deserves to come to New York and there's this, you know, audience for it here. Um, and it all kind of happened from there. Wow. That's so like, how do you go about financing a $9 million show? Is this where a lot of your team comes in, the co-producers? Like explain a little bit about how that process sort of works. Yeah, you know, one of the coolest parts about raising the money for Be More Chill was that I had had the experience of working with a number of producers. So I knew the basic tenets of like how that worked. Um, but this was such a unique moment in that I had like 10 years worth of people who had come to see Joe's shows, who had supported us like in concerts that we'd done, who I kind of always was like, oh, if we ever have the opportunity to do something big, I feel like maybe they would be interested in investing or co-producing. So I had that like mental arsenal of, um, just like all those folks and a lot of them who again had been supporting us in different ways for 10 years who were like a donor on the board of a theater that had like done a show with us you know five years earlier came on board and like a wow. lot of the people that were on board for the Be More Chill journey from like the investor who invested the smallest amount to the co-producer who raised the highest amount were people that had this history with like our family of artists so it definitely made it a, a pretty special experience and that said, a lot of the people were also new. A lot of the people had discovered Be More Chill um, and that was like their main entry point and that was their first time investing in a Broadway show and that was like why they came on board. Um, it was interesting. And they're probably seeing this blow up on social media and going, well, maybe I should be getting involved in this. This could be something really special. 
totally. And we had such wonderful investors who came to the show because like through their kids, it was like, oh, like, you know, I can think of at least five of my investors who truly were like, oh, I learned about this show from my daughter or like my son does cosplay as one of the characters. And I've always thought about investing in Broadway. Um, and those families, you know, like were so supportive and came to the show. And um, it was such a unique kind of family that we built up the Lyceum. In your TEDx Broadway, you said Broadway is completely controlled by real estate. Who can get which theater and when has a huge impact in its success or even if it happens at all. So in order for our art form to thrive, we need to pay attention to our real estate as we do to the shows. So how did you end up choosing the Lyceum? Do they call you with availability? Was it the off-Broadway production at the Pershing Square Signature Center that convinced the Schubert organization to give it a shot? Like, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, such a good question. Um, you know, what's fascinating to me is that people, I think, during this time in 2020 are realizing more and more just how much power the landlords and the theater owners have. You know, it's gone beyond that just like core of like theater makers who get to have meetings with them and like put shows in theaters where people really understand that that's where the power lies. Um, it's so fascinating to me that like, you know, in Jonathan Larson's time, which is to say like in the 1990 era, mm. um, half of the theaters were empty. You know, it's like there were so many years in the 80s and 90s where like if you had the money to do a show, the Nederlanders or the Schubert or Jansen would give you a theater because they were empty. Um, and we got to this point in the, you know, 2010s, especially in the 2000s, where, uh, you know, there were tons of shows with the money to come in, with the resources ready to go, and you only have 41 theaters. And so um, it's not just about even like you could raise $9 million, you could have a show ready to go and you could not go to Broadway because a landlord chooses if they have five shows, which do they think is going to make the most money for the booth or which show do they believe in the most for the, you know, Schoenfeld or whatever. Um, it's really those landlords, as you said, like from the top that have, you know, the power. Um, for Be More Chill, we started talking to all of the Broadway landlords very early on to ATG, Jujamson, Niederlander and Schubert um, to say, you know, we're interested in coming to Broadway. This is the journey our show is on come see it, you know, this is who we are, and started having all those conversations very early, like way before the show was even at the signature. Um, so by the time we're at the signature, we're getting audience responses, we're getting reviews, we're having opening night, we had the groundwork laid to go into those offices again and say, we wanna go to Broadway, and like, this is what we've got, this is our timeline, this is all of these things. Um, I was so, so lucky to get to go to those meetings. Like what a dream of like historian and producer. Yeah, I was going to say this, just open up the head and drop in the information, hey? I have such an amazing memory of the day that we had the meetings with the Schub the meeting with the Schuberts that led to us getting the Lyceum. We happened to be doing a two-player game show with George Salazar and Joe at 54 Below. And that was another big part of my challenge as producer was like, what things do you tell the artists you're working with, um, you know, when for so long it's been like, let me text my friends all these things. And then you're like, what do you tell the actors anticipating this huge break? Like how much information? So, um, yeah, it was interesting. The day we met with the Schuberts and got the Lyceum, uh, we didn't think the Lyceum was originally the theater we were going to go to, but it was so perfect that it was. And it definitely was a full circle moment for me. Wow. that How special. Also, if you get a chance, watch the TEDx Broadway. It's so phenomenal. You're so great. It's cool to see how many theaters have closed, like how many theaters have opened and also just what those theaters would be doing today, et cetera. It's, it's such a great thing. Okay. So Jennifer, I wanted to play a game with you called radio play where we get to know about you more Jennifer Ashley Tepper rather than you, Jennifer Ashley Tepper, the producer ready to play. Yes. Awesome. So what time do you wake up in the morning? Oh my God. Depends. But like nine <laughs> favorite lyric from a music theater song. Uh, my name is awful long because it's the lyrics to this song by Joe Iconis from Blood Song of Love. Uh, current favorite pop song? Uh, All Too Well by Taylor Swift. 
love T, love T Swift. Um, uh, current favorite Netflix show? You know, I, oh my God, so many. I was obsessed with the new Mindy Kaling um, series, the high school one, which the name is not in my brain. It's not in my brain either, but they just got, I think, renewed for a second season, I feel like. Yes, and I truly like watched it twice, like a month ago. That's COVID for you. My brain is like, <laughs> Yeah. Um, unlimited budget, what show are you producing? Um, you know, probably, definitely a Joy Connors musical. Maybe his new Huntress Thompson musical. Great. And most famous person you've met? You know, I walked by Bill Clinton at Marvin Hamlish's funeral, which I've thought about a lot this week for obvious reasons. I guess <laughs> probably pretty famous in the scheme of th- I don't know why that was the first thing that came to mind, but it was. <laughs> Wait, what? You're at Marvin Hamlish's funeral and then just Bill Clinton's there? And did you meet him? Like, did you go like, hey, how you doing? No, not really. Um, they were close. You know, Marvin Hamlish was really involved as an artist with like a lot of political causes. And so, uh, yeah, no, I was... I knew Marvin a little bit. He came to NYU and spoke to the same kind of show that I mentioned that I produced. So, um, yeah, no, being in the same room as Bill Clinton. But I don't know. Like, it's hard to say, like, who's more famous, Bill Clinton or name, like, a, you know, major theater movie celebrity? I know. It's really such a subjective question. But also, out of four interviews, that's the second president that's been named. I've had Joe Biden and now Bill Clinton. The news just randomly came on. Did you hear that? Yes, I did. That's okay. Is it good news? <laughs> I mean, no, I have it on pause, and it's just like, ah! <laughs> okay, I turned it all the way off. I turned the television all the way off. Now, you've probably seen that I'm wearing mismatched pajamas, which is all great. It's okay, don't worry. I literally dressed up like this, and then now I've got Lululemon pants on the bottom. So <laughs> we're all we're all party, or like business on the top and party at the bottom. Um, okay, so the most person, the most famous person you have in your phone. You know, I do think that Stephen Sondheim is in my phone, so I'll say Stephen Sondheim. But <laughs> um, I'm one of those people who like I've never lost my phone. So if you've given me a number in my entire life since I've had a phone, I have it. So it's pretty wild in that. Wait, like, are you texting Stephen Sondheim on the <laughs> regular, being like, "Yo, how you doing? Are you watching this?" <laughs> No, but I definitely, the reason I remember this is because I went to text a friend named Steven somewhat recently, and I was like, oh, Steven Flaherty, Steven Spinella, Steven Sondheim. Like, great, I better be careful with this section of my phone. I'm literally, I'm going to fall over, and these plates are going to be broken, and they're, it's all going to be <laughs> your fault. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, a performance you wish you could relive. Oh, that's a great question. Um, hmm, a performance I wish I could relive... There are so many like special ones. I would love to like go back to the black suits when we were working on that at Barrington and just like see that one more time. That would make me really happy right now. And because you're a theater historian, I'm gonna ask you this, a performance you wish you could have seen when it first premiered. Um, you know, I have a bunch of like time machine kind of dream shows, but because I was so obsessed with the musical Shuffle Along in 2016, I would love to go back and see the original Shuffle Along. Like that would, I would love that so much. Biggest pet peeve. Oh my God, my cousins make fun of me because I hate when people email and the subject line is quick question because like at least like one day we all get an email, quick question. And I'm like, you need to make that a different subject. Um, Ideal Friday night. Ideal Friday night. You know, at this point I'm like, I just want to be in a room full of people I like watching someone play music where we all have drinks in our hands. Like I just miss it so much. So Ideal Friday night is like, Honestly, probably like at 54 Below or somewhere else with people I love performing and playing instruments and in the audience, I miss it. If you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? 
I always say the 1970s, and I freaking love the 1970s, but I weirdly have become obsessed with the 1890s, which people are like, what? Why? <laughs> I don't know. And there are so many things I wouldn't enjoy about it. I, I, you know, my hair frizzes. I need air conditioning. But, like, it would be cool. This is too good. I love this. Okay, a few more. What does a person need to be happy? That's a, wow. Oh, my God. How do people answer that question? I think You're the first one I've asked this to. Okay. So. I think it's different for everybody, but um, I think maybe that's part of it. Like what you need to be happy is figure out what happiness is to yourself. Like there is no like self-help book that can give you all the answers. It's definitely like a personal journey. Should award shows exist? Yes, award shows should definitely exist. Um, I think people should stop like thinking that they're based on merit 100% because they never have been in the history of time and never will be. Maybe that's a little bit cynical, but they should definitely exist and they can change some of the things that they do that are not entirely, um, you know, ethical. But overall, I think people's issues with them um, are just something that's like inherent in what an award show is. If you were given the opportunity to fly into space dead, given today's technology, would you do it? Probably not. <laughs> you wouldn't, eh? For me, who like, I fly all over the place, but I'm a nervous flyer. I think me going into space would be a bit of a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's radio play. Okay. So I have one more question for you because we've taken up enough of your time into two acts, by the way. People will not have known that, but they will now. <laughs> um, but... I want to ask you, as obviously a theater historian, I know I've said that like 900 times throughout this interview, what do you think the future of theater looks like? I think that when we get through the time period that we're in right now, theater looks like a very exciting new era with like a lot of scrappy opportunities to make theater in new ways, whether it's in different kinds of venues, whether it's hybrids of, you know, streaming and virtual and live performance. I think that there's going to be a period of rebuild, rebuilding that's going to be really challenging and that's going to require a lot of, um, you know, public help and money and help from the government um, and struggle. And that when we get through that, the next era of theater is like, how exciting to be part of rebuilding something like we've never shut down for this long, which is truly so depressing and challenging, but we've also never had the opportunity to like come back from it and create something new the way that we're going to. So I'm really excited about it. Like I'm really excited about some of the ways that it's going to like restart certain things. Um, and I'm just excited for like, you know, I'm excited to live through it, but I'm also excited to see where we're at five years after we restart. Wow. What a great answer. I love that. Jennifer Ashley Tepper, thank you so much for your time, for your honesty, for your knowledge, because you're literally the most knowledgeable person. I literally have never met anyone that has read (laughs) over 100 books. Um, It's been such a privilege to have you on the show. I think you're so fantastic. And everyone should be going onto her website, jenniferashleytepper.com, and checking out the rest of her resume. As I said, I literally only put out a quarter of it. Um, Do you have any socials that you want people to follow you on? Yeah, people can follow me at Jen Ashtap um, on Twitter or Instagram. And thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Like, it's so nice chatting with you. Yeah, this is, it's seriously, it's so fun. I love getting to know different people and especially someone that I follow for so long. And it's, it's been really great. Thank you again for having me.